Well, today we have the next sermon in our American Gods series, where we're arming you to understand and resist the various bad philosophies that rule the world. And today we're talking about the occult. So question, has anyone in here ever had an experience with a ghost or a demon or UFO or anything supernatural? Anybody ever taken a picture with Bigfoot? I grew up, and actually a lot of people in here grew up during what is called the satanic panic. If you grew up in the 80s or 90s, then you were part of something that people now refer to, maybe they referred to it then too, as the satanic panic. And what happened was there were all these stories going around, urban legends and rumors and stuff about covens and witches and satanists and like in Halloween, razor blades and apples and Dungeons and Dragons was a gateway to the demonic, all that kind of stuff. There was just, there were stories about that. People were really scared of that back then. And I grew up in a charismatic church when I was very young and they really believe in spiritual warfare. So I remember just feeling alive to the occult and to demonic activity all around me. And actually one time my dad sat me down when I was six or seven or eight or nine and showed me a TV special that had been made for Trinity Broadcasting Network. And it was like the special where they had people who had gotten out of the occult or former witches, former warlocks, giving their testimonies and pastors and spiritual experts talking about the occult. And I guess ostensibly the idea was that we have power over these things, but that's really not the way that it came across. Like they shot everybody in these dark rooms with like really shadowy lighting. I remember we watched the special at like eight or nine o'clock at night, right before bedtime for whatever reason. And they had all this spooky music, da, 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 da. and the message was basically just Satan is real and he's horrifying and he could be under your bed and your neighbor could be a witch and there are cults everywhere that want to swallow your soul. <laughs> but you can have power if you read your Bible. Power over the malevolent demons that could be right behind you. <laughs> and I remember I, you know, we got done and I was like, dad, I don't feel very empowered. <laughs> and my dad was like, go to bed and don't forget to turn all the lights off. Sweet dreams. <laughs> so the occult always felt very real to me, but it wasn't until many years later that I began to think about whether those things are actually true. Like what is actually real? What has actual power about this stuff? What does the Bible actually say? So, so let me ask, do you think that the occult is something that actually matters to us as a church? Will it have impact on us? Well, the answer is it will. The, it has actually, as a matter of fact, already. Not that like evil cultists have come against us, but these beliefs are out there and people attach to them, right? This is something we will contend with in this church. Even in conservative middle America, Evansville, 
occult beliefs have taken hold. It's a big deal. The, the New Age movement, which I would very much say is part of the occult, has uh, 60 million members in America and Western Europe. You've got guys like Joe Rogan and the whole independent thought movement. Some of you may be familiar with this stuff. Some of you may not, but they push things like DMTs and ayahuasca and LSD, ways of taking drugs to have a spiritual experience, to meet spiritual beings. It's very much just old school kind of occultism. You take a potion, you have a spiritual experience. Uh, Harry Potter, I like Harry Potter. This is not an anti-Harry Potter sermon, but Harry Potter has popularized like a, a very benign idea of witchcraft for a whole generation. I'm sure for some people it's been a gateway drug. I know for some people it's been a gateway drug. You have ghost movies like The Conjuring. Actually, there's there's two movies out this week alone about Satanism. There's one called Nefarious, which is like a Christian movie. Uh, another Satan is real kind of movie, I think, from the God is not dead people. But... You've got that movie and you've got another one called like the Pope's Exorcist or something like that. So that's two of them just this week. And you've got ghost hunting shows and ancient aliens and conspiracy theories and podcasts about angelology, demonology, UFOs. This stuff is huge right now. A couple of years back, there was a documentary called Hail Satan about how Satanism is being embraced by leftists and feminists because I guess Satan is a leftist and feminist. They said it, not me. <laughs> uh, I haven't been to ECS, our local Christian school, but I grew up in Christian school. I just bet at ECS you could find things that come from the occult, and whether it's charm bracelets or cootie catchers, or uh, probably there's some kids that have done tarot cards or played with Ouija boards. Like it's a thing out there, right? It is going to have fruit in our church, and and so there are four things. I want to do today to help us understand the occult and what it is and, and resist it. First of all, I want to define what it is because it is such a broad topic and we could be talking about so many things, but I want to define what the occult is. Secondly, I, I want to talk briefly about the history of the occult, ver, uh, the occult very briefly and some of its modern categories, things like Wicca and neo-paganism and stuff like that. And then most importantly, I want to answer the question of whether the occult is real like are there real power behind these things and if so how does that work and then i want to talk about how to resist the occult and and resist the power of the devil so let's define the occult what is the occult well, the way i would define it is this it is any system or belief or practice that attempts to access the supernatural or the spiritual world apart from God. So it's magic, right? Like the, the three major religions of the Western world, Christianity, the true religion, and then Islam and Judaism, like they all focus on God. God is the main character. We are supposed to be in relationship with God. In occultism though, God isn't the main character anymore. I am. And it's about what I want. It's about me accessing the supernatural apart from God to get things. Get whatever I can get by communicating with spirits, by talking to the dead, by joining with the spiritual powers and nature. I am trying to access the supernatural, whether I'm into Wicca or witchcraft or 
new age or, or whatever. And we'll talk about some of those categories later on. But the big question is, why would somebody want to access the supernatural or the natural world and, and those kinds of powers apart from God? Well, it's an attempt to control the uncontrollable and know the unknowable. Something that everyone is always trying to do. I mean, if you look down on magic, you just you have to ask yourself, like, do you ever attempt to control the uncontrollable or know the unknowable? I mean, we really, we, we all do. I mean, have you ever taken a diet pill or invested in a bad cryptocurrency or followed an, an internet link that promises to keep you looking youthful forever? Just eat cucumbers or whatever. Have you ever uh, flipped open your Bible and said, you know, I need to know whether to accept this job or not. I'm just going to flip open my Bible and I'm going to point to it and, and, and whatever it says, that's God's word to me. And then it's always something like, there were 15 camels. <laughs> so we want to have definitive answers to things. We want to make God tell us his will. We want to control the uncontrollable. We want to know the unknowable. After I went on my first date with Meredith, now my wife, I said, I'm going to marry that girl. And I went home and I ran into my mom and she said, hey, how'd your date go? And I said, I'm going to marry that girl. And she said, well, Nathan, you know, you've been on one date and you don't really know. And I was like, I'm going to marry that girl. I, I wanted her so bad. I had this yearning. And it was terrifying to think like she might say, no, there might not be another date. This might not work. I might not get what I want, but I wanted it so bad. And if there had been a magic potion, I could have drank. You better believe I would have been tempted to do that. And, and that's what magic is. It's a way to get the girl or not to age or take vengeance on your enemies or know what's going to happen to answer the great mysteries like what happens to us after we die. I mean, as, we, as we've talked about so much at Church of the King, God made it so we reap what we sow. So we plant and then we do some work and then we harvest. But we want shortcuts, shortcuts to knowledge, to power, to sex, to health, to whatever. There's no one in this room that's not guilty of that. And that's really all that magic is. The magic is just a little bit more upfront about, hey, you want to subvert the natural order to get what you want than, than a lot of other belief systems. Alistair Crowley, the great English occultist, one of the great occultists of all time, said, do what thou wilt shall be the whole law. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole law. And that's a pretty good summary of where occultism come, comes from. So once again, occultism is, is, is any way that we try to access the supernatural or the spiritual world apart from God so that we can get what we want. Now, that's what it is. Let's move on to a history of the occult. And we're going to try and keep this brief because it's just like there's so many different things and stuff that falls under the category of magic and occult. Like we could spend nine hours on this or like three minutes. So we're going to do closer to the three minute version. But magic and the occult, supernatural powers have been with us since prehistoric times in every culture. I mean, we see magic in the ancient Aboriginal peoples from the earliest times. Uh, peoples would have shamans 
holy men, holy women who would have these folk remedies, doctors who dabbled as exorcists. I mean, you have to remember the dividing line that we have now between rational science over here and the spiritual world over here. Most people throughout history haven't really thought that way. They've kind of thought of them both as being part of the human experience and and, and not easily bifurcated, right? And so you had doctors that doubled as exorcists, doctors who would say, hey, take this potion, which contains an herb that would actually help heal you. And also, let me cast out the demon, right? And you just have that kind of stuff throughout history from the earliest times. You look at the big ancient civilizations, Babylon, Samaria, Egypt. They had their magicians. They had their soothsayers. Actually, some of the best accounts of those are in the Bible. So you remember the story of Moses and Aaron, and they come to Egypt and let my people go. And Moses has his miracles. Aaron throws down his staff and it turns into a snake. Well, then what do the Egyptian magicians do? They throw down their staffs and they turn into snakes. And then, of course, it's awesome. God's staff eats the other two staffs, which is totally baller. But you see the Egyptian magicians actually competing with Moses and doing their own kind of miracle-like things. And has anybody seen the the movie Prince of Egypt, the animated Moses film. So that one, the Egyptian magicians are kind of portrayed as like Vegas magicians. They're doing sleight of hand and secret stuff and kind of, you know, they don't have any real power. They're just tricking people. Now I want to ask, do you think that that's what the Bible says? Do you think that that's actually the story that's in the text of scripture? We'll get back to that. But ancient Greece, ancient Rome, I mean, they had magic and magic cults and things like that. They had their official religions, and then they had their kind of decadent philosophers, your Plato, your Aristotle, Socrates type people who maybe didn't believe in the supernatural world at all, very sophisticated kind of modern type people. Then as now, you had a lot of folk religions and little occultic things existing between the cracks of the more organized religions. The evil emperor Nero, everybody know Nero, he actually murdered his mom famously. And then he felt bad about it, so he got some necromancers to come and raise her from the dead so he could apologize. Nice nice guy. Um, also, of course, in ancient Israel, there's witches and necromancers and mediums. Most famously, there's the witch at Endor in First Samuel who raises up the prophet Samuel so that he can talk to King Saul. And my question there, you know, people have different interpretations. Did, did God do something special or was it really not Samuel? Was it a demon or did this witch just have witch powers? I think about it. We're, like I said, we're going to come back to that. Now we could talk about a lot more. We could talk about Celtic Druids, Chinese Wu, Irish fairies, uh, Norse and Mayan human sacrifice, uh, the Persian Magi, like the three wise men who came to visit Jesus were probably the followers of a magician-type dude named Zoroaster or Zarathustra. This stuff is just throughout history. And as Christianity swept across the Western world in the Middle Ages, it pushed out the old pagan religions. But it also, Christianity wasn't perfect. Christians aren't perfect. They didn't always stamp this stuff out like they should have. And so... Sometimes Christianity would come in, but it would kind of get mixed up with 
the pagan cults and the little folk religions. And so you get stories like the mythical story of King Arthur and with his wizard Merlin, who's very much a pagan sorcerer, but he's serving a Christian king. And if you read the original Arthur stories, like the stuff that Merlin does, it's very pagan stuff. It's not stuff we would approve of. It's very dark. But he's serving again at the behest of this Christian king. So it's just this interesting mixture. Islam, too. Uh, the, the Quran is very much opposed to magic and the occult, just like the Bible is. But Islam, in the Islamic part of the world, would mix with folk magic and you'd get these weird hybrids. So actually, astrology largely comes from the Islamic world. And it's because those guys are really preoccupied with astronomy and with reading the stars. And why would that be? Well, it's because Mecca. They have to worship facing Mecca, which means you have to be able to tell where Mecca is in relation to where you are, which means you need to be able to read the stars. And so you start reading the stars, and then you throw in a dash of magic, and you get astrology. So big picture, the occult has always existed in the cracks kind of between organized religion and society. But in the modern world, it's actually become much more mainstream in a weird way. And the modern occult really begins with the Industrial Revolution in the late 19th century and then had a big boost during the, the sort of sexual and social revolutions in the 1960s and the 1970s. And then actually now, during the 2000s, in, in recent years, the occult has become really big again, as we were talking about at the beginning. Now, why is it? What, what is the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century and the 1960s, 1970s, sexual revolution type stuff? And now, what do those three time periods have in common? Well, you're talking about times of great social upheaval. Things are unstable politically, economically, socially. Everything is changing. And trust in institutional authority is low. And people feel powerless. They want a source of power. Yeah, of this fatherless generation right now who don't have families and they want something big to believe in, something transcendent, something powerful to worship. And if the church isn't giving them God, isn't giving them Jesus, or it's giving them a weak, pathetic version of God, something that's watered down, well, they're going to turn to other places. And that, I think, explains why the occult is so big and why there's so much interest among so many kinds of people, even ostensibly kind of conservative people these days. Now, I want to talk about the sort of categories of the modern occult really quickly, but there are so many strands, and keep in mind that these are really broad categories because they don't have holy books, and they don't have precise theology, and they don't even have like central figures, many of them, that we can look to and examine their teachings. It's just kind of people coming together and all believing something. So these are very broad categories, and they kind of overlap with each other. But some of the big categories that you'll hear about that you should have handles in your mind to understand are as follows. So first of all, you've got Wicca and other forms of neo-paganism, real-life modern witchcraft. Has anybody in here ever known a real witch? A true story. I was almost uh, birthed by a witch. Not my, my mom's not a witch. I mean, like, we had a midwife, I guess, who was a witch, and my parents had to fire her. She just seemed like a hippy-dippy kind of midwife lady, but 
they found out, I think just a few weeks before I was born, that she was a witch. So they, they had to let her go. And Wicca, other forms of neo-paganism, these, these are people who want to go back to the ancient pagan belief in gods kind of everywhere, spiritual power in nature, in every rock, and every tree, spiritual power in the feminine essence, in the female. These people generally aren't big fans of males or of the patriarchy. And they do have a lot of overlap, as I said earlier, with feminists and with environmentalists. And um, usually there's a lot of unchecked uh, sexuality involved. So that's very broadly Wicca, Wiccan practices, neo-paganism. Next we have shamanism. And these are people who follow a shaman, a shaman, a, a guru, usually from Central Asia or Tibet or Siberia, like a holy man who isn't quite Buddhist or Hindu or Shinto, but he's his own thing. Obviously, this has a, a lot of overlap with the Eastern religions that Pastor Ben talked to us about, but usually it's a little distinct in that it's not specifically linked to any of the big ones like Buddhism or Hindu or Shinto, but it, it's just kind of, hey, let's pick and choose and kind of have a guru who can teach us things, and usually there's a lot of unchecked sexuality involved. Now next, one of the biggest, broadest categories, New Age and Enlightenment philosophies. And these things kind of combine all of the above, like you have a little neo-paganism in there, the belief in nature and female essence and all this kind of stuff. And you have a little shamanism, a little Eastern stuff, some self-denial of the body, some emptying ourselves. You kind of put it all together and you've got new age philosophies. I think in a, in a lot of ways, new age is just taking the other stuff we've talked about, taking new neo-paganism, taking kind of Eastern shamanism and just dressing it up in nicer clothes, basically. Like, it's just, let's call it new age, and we can kind of be popular in that way. And sometimes how, even though it's about, like, self-denial and leaving the body behind, it kind of works out that there's a lot of unchecked sexuality involved. Now, finally, we have modern Satanism. The Church of Satan was founded in 1966 by an old hippie named Anton DeVay in... Anybody know? <laughs> yes. Where else? San Francisco. And the thing to understand when you see Satanists in the news, when you hear about the Church of Satan or the Temple of Satan or Satanist, most of these people are actually atheists. They claim Satan kind of as their totem because he rebelled against God and they really want to too. They don't like white men and they don't like organized religion and they don't like capitalism and they're protesting all these things and they don't actually believe in like a literal satan like when i picture satanism i i picture like guys in robes chanting and sacrificing a goat or something like that but actually you'll see news stories about the church of satan or the temple of satan or things like that and that's that's not what this is it's just atheists who hate god basically now you might say there's some satanic power behind that but not in the creepy horror movie sort of way. Okay, so those are some big categories. That's all the time I want to spend there. So we've defined the occult. We've talked about kind of what it is, which is just anyone trying to access supernatural power apart from God. And we've talked about its history, some of its categories. Now, let's answer the big question. 
Is it real? Is the occult real? Is there real power behind this stuff? Now, let me ask you, do you think the occult is real? Do you think, like, okay, we're all Christians. We're all here. We all, we all believe, if you're a Christian and you believe in the Bible, you believe there are Christian men, Jesus and then his apostles and his prophets, who did miracles through the power of God. They suspended the laws of nature. You believe that really happened. Now, do you believe there are pagans? Do you believe there are people who do not claim Christ, who do not worship the one true living God, who have been able to suspend the laws of nature? Well, here's the answer. It's complicated. I would say the majority of things I have talked about today are dumb and made up. Maybe not to the majority, but many of them. Many of them are just people grasping for powers and abilities or gaining power or influence by claiming they have power and abilities. Like That's always been with us throughout human history. Uh, there are some real examples of evil miracles, we'll say, in the Bible. But there's a lot more examples, I think, of places where you'll have like a pagan king and he'll call his soothsayers and his dream interpreters and they won't have Jack. They won't be able to do anything. They, they, they won't actually have any power. They're just charlatans and frauds. The most famous example of that, of course, is the contest between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal are calling on Baal to send fire to burn up their sacrifice. And nothing's happening because there is no Baal. And Elijah's like, what's wrong? Is he uh, in the bathroom? Is he uh, asleep? And nothing happens. Then, of course, Elijah calls on God to send fire down. And the fire comes out of heaven and burns up not just the sacrifice, but the entire altar and everything. And it's awesome, right? Now, that's an example of the prophets of this demon just, just being fake frauds, right? Having said that, though, there is real power behind some of this stuff. First of all, Satan is real. There is a Satan. There is an intelligent, malevolent being out there who has real power and who stands against us. Stands against us. The word Satan actually means adversary. And he exists. He has followers. They're called demons. And, and the Bible says that he exists, but then it actually tells us very little about him. There are a few things we know for sure about Satan. We know that God made all things, that Satan is a creation. It's not like there's God over here and Satan over here and they're in this eternal contest and it's like it's yin and yang kind of thing. No, God is God and then Satan is just a creative being like you, like me. At some point, he seems to have rebelled and brought along his followers and he's properly understood as kind of an angel-like being. So you see in the book of Job that he comes before God along with other angels. And you see in the book of Job, Job that he is completely under God's control. He has to ask God permission to torment Job. And so Satan doesn't do anything apart from God allowing him to. And the last thing we know about Satan is that he's going to be utterly destroyed, not annihilated, but punished forever. Jesus himself refers to a lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
First Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there is a real Satan. Now with that groundwork laid, there are many examples in scripture where people seem to have real power derived from the demonic. So you ask me, Nathan, do you believe in magic? Do you believe in the occult? I don't believe in magic like Harry Potter magic, this kind of impersonal force that you can draw on. I do believe that there are many charlatans and frauds who pretend that they have that kind of magic. But I believe and we should believe in demons. And we should believe that people do sometimes have power granted them by demons. These powers can include secret knowledge, unnatural ability or potency in this area or that, dealings with the dead. Those Old Testament stories we mentioned earlier, the Witch of Endor, the Egyptian magicians, I just take them at face value. And that's the best reading. That's the easiest reading. If you just look at what the words seem to mean, they seem to mean these people had real powers and they used them. The Bible takes these things for granted and takes them seriously. In Deuteronomy 18, God is giving his law to his people. Deuteronomy 18, starting with verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. That's the Old Testament. You go to the New Testament, Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19. The Apostle Paul is listing the evil works of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. The Bible acknowledges that these things exist, and it forbids them, and it doesn't spend a lot of time on them. There's very little in the scriptures about the devil or demons or sorcery or black magic. And I have an idea why. I think God knows that to even speak too much about this stuff is to risk kind of inculcating wicked desires within us. Like this stuff has a pull, secret knowledge, forbidden powers. Even giving a sermon like this can be problematic because you don't want to get people too interested in this stuff. The Bible doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but... We can draw a couple of principles, and they are this, that we should have a disdain for charlatans and predators of all kinds. Uh, We should have a healthy belief in and respect for the existence of the demonic. And we should stay away from this stuff. We should have nothing to do with any of this stuff. Do not mess with it. Don't take DMTs. Don't look into occultic practices. Don't listen to podcasts or read books or watch movies that invite you to peer into things that God hasn't chosen to reveal about the dark side of things, don't give yourself to the demonic. So, so that's the first thing. A Christian has no sense messing with any of this stuff. Just stay away. But that brings us to my final point, which is how do we deal with the demonic? We know this stuff is out there, so how do we defend ourselves against it? Well, 2 Timothy 2 has, I think, the answer, beginning in verse 24. The Apostle Paul is writing to 
Timothy, a pastor, and telling him the kinds of things that pastors should do. And this is one of the things he says, quote, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's just like a normal passage about what a pastor should do. Correct people in their errors so they repent and escape the snares of the devil. So that's how you fight the devil. Does that sound like a exorcist movie? Like a conjuring movie? No. The, the devil is not a sensationalist. He doesn't have to be sensational. We've been talking today about the miracles, quote-unquote, of the devil, and I believe those exist, but the devil does not primarily work through miracles. He works through the temptation to... Get angry at your wife, to nag your husband, to check out the cute girl in the short shorts, to watch a bad YouTube video, to give in to pride. The, the devil doesn't have to be sensationalistic. He can ensnare us with everyday stuff. So you don't, you don't have to study the occult to fight the devil. And you don't have to see demons around every corner like my stupid TBN special I had to watch. You need to read the Bible. You need to go to church. You need to do the regular work of being a christian ephesians 6 11, put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil we don't have time to go into it but it's a pretty famous passage you probably know it right it talks about the armor of god and it talks about things like truth righteousness peace faith salvation the spirit the word of god normal stuff so if you want to resist satan read the bible listen to sermons go to men's group go to women's group Exhort each other, encourage each other. Don't listen to bad songs on the radio. You know, do normal Christian stuff. We need to boringly resist the devil. Which, of course, it isn't boring. It's the adventure of a lifetime. But if if you're expecting, like, the exorcist, then I guess you might find it a little mundane. Now, one final point before I'm done. We need a scary God. We need a scary God. I grew up really interested in the demonic. I felt, like I said at the beginning, like I was in a world of the occult, in a world of darkness, in a world of the demonic. And I wanted to learn more. I wanted to peer into that stuff so that I could have some control over it so I wouldn't be scared of it, right? And so I read books about the occult and I watched movies, a lot of horror movies, things like this, trying to learn more and more. And I had this fascination with this, with with all this stuff because it felt big, it felt exciting, it felt like it was transcendent and beyond and other and cool. And I can still remember when I was about 25, I was just reading the Bible and I read Psalm 18 and it, it flipped my entire world around. So Psalm 18 is this psalm. It starts with King David. He's in distress and his enemies surround him. You know, pretty standard psalm thing. And then he says this, starting in verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked the foundation also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth glowing coals 
flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. I remember reading that and just realizing like every time I've given myself to the occult, every time I've been interested in horror movies or the demonic, it's because I want to worship something that is powerful. And because I'm evil, the only kind of power that I can imagine is evil power. But God is powerful. God is scary. God is worthy of my worship. God is worthy of that awe that I want to feel at something that is supernatural, something that is beyond me. And I think so many young people find their way kind of to the dark side of the forest because they do long for something big, something terrifying, something wonderful, something bigger than them. And God is that. See, we have to teach our kids and teach ourselves about the bigness of God. We need to teach them about hell. We need to teach them about God's wrath. It says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And people say, well, it means awe. No, I mean, yeah, it does mean awe. What I've been talking about is awe, but awe combined with fear, real fear of God. Now, maybe you're listening to that and you're, and you're afraid, like really seeing the holiness and fearsomeness of God would wreck your ability to feel the embrace of God's love. Now, if it does that, you're doing it wrong. I mean, I think that's like saying, I think of the sun as a happy yellow thing that keeps me warm. And I'm afraid if I study its awesome scientific properties, its hugeness, its heat, its destructive power, I won't be able to think of it as a happy yellow thing that keeps me warm. Well, here's an idea. Isn't it awesome that this epic galactic furnace the size of a million Earths is also the happy yellow thing that keeps you warm and makes flowers grow? It is good that the sun is the happy yellow thing, but if that's all it is, you're taking the sun for granted. Instead, realize it is a star, a heavenly body, clothed in majesty. It could consume you like a drop of water falling into the ocean, but instead it serves you and it makes the flowers grow that you set on your kitchen windowsill. Now, isn't it awesome that God, infinite, unknowable, this being without beginning, vaster than the stars, more powerful than the cosmos, loved us, knew us, forgave us, became like us, is a father to us, made his son the first of many brothers. If you haven't understood the fear of God, you haven't understood the love of God, which means you haven't really understood anything. We need the fear of God. If we don't have it, we will give ourselves to all kinds of evil. Let's pray.